Hey, what a year, Frank. Are we uh, are we going to have a fun show, or is it just going to be the usual stuff? <laughs> I I think that we need a fun show at this point. Yeah, I guess. All right. Well, it's all up to you. <laughs> oh God. Okay. <laughs> Mister Cheerful. <laughs> Welcome to Twill, the week in health law. The Told You So, Senator Collins, podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on December 20th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my sleepy co-host, who's been staying up late watching England get thrashed by Australia in the ashes, and who is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And well-known cricket fan. Uh, this week... Uh, great welcome back to uh, Andrea Matwishan, Professor of Law at Northeastern School of Law. In addition to her appointment on the law faculty there, she is a Professor of Computer Science and Co-Director of the Law School Center for Law, Innovation and Creativity. She is also a faculty affiliate of the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School. Regular listeners will know of her work in technology and innovation policy, information security, consumer privacy, and intellectual property. She's a great friend, a smart colleague, and a pod favorite. Welcome back, Andrea. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. So quickly, a couple of sort of current stories. The first one I put into the show notes um, uh, four or five days ago before it sort of went viral and found itself everywhere uh, in news uh, feeds and so on. But I still want to put in my two cents. Um, over the last year, I've certainly seen and heard things that I never believed were uh, part anymore of the fabric of our society um, or any civil or humane society. Um, but if I could just pick out one example that I think probably uh, uh, showed just where, where we are in terms of policymaking, um, that's the Washington Post article that uh, exploded uh, last week from Lena Sun and uh, Juliet Iperin reporting that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had been given a list of forbidden words that may not appear in official documents. Now, if you haven't been following the story, these are not the same as George Carlin's seven dirty words, but instead are the following vulnerable, entitlement, diversity, transgender, fetus, evidence-based, and science-based. Now, in the case of those last two phrases, they are to be replaced with, quote, science in consideration with community standards and wishes, unquote, which I assume is what the lobbyists asked for. Our dear friend Lindsay Wiley uh, did uh, uh, author a post wondering whether there was, in fact, a, a different sort of underlying narrative here, whereby this was sort of non-political appointees at CDC uh, coaching their budget writers to avoid language that might enrage uh, their social conservative masters. Um, but later reporting cast doubt on that more uh, uplifting tape. Post reporters also noticed other Orwellian moves at HHS, such as removing a page outlining federal services that are available for elderly. LGBT people and their families, um, while the George Consortium's uh, Public Health Watch reminded us in a tweet about uh, existing bans on gun accident research and so on. When Altachara was here on the pod discussing the administration's fake reproductive news, we wondered about how long it would be before the suppression of scientific evidence in environmental regulation would spread to healthcare policy. And now we know. Yeah, it's a really sad commentary, Nick, and um, remarkable to see uh, you know, where, where is this going? You know, and I'm just wondering in terms of the budget and, you know, how far the administration will reach down into the agencies in terms of line items, in terms of either budget requests, or is this something that is sort of a signal to Congress to go in that direction? I don't know. So the other more legal story that I picked up is uh, Pennsylvania against Trump. This is um, Eastern District in Pennsylvania, and uh, the district court has entered a preliminary injunction blocking the Trump administration interim final rule on contraceptive coverage, religious and moral exemptions. The first ground was procedural and tracks the criticism that um, Nick Bagley raised as soon as the rule was promulgated, that the administration didn't use notice and comment. Um, uh, the judge here ruled there was no good cause for that. And um, uh, the, uh, the administration's argument that post-promulgation arguments just didn't hack this particular piece of administrative 
uh, Law 101. Uh, the court also ruled against the administration on substantive grounds, saying that the moral exemption was amorphous and had no ACA legal basis, while the religious exemption was not justified by RIFRA because there was no substantial burden to the exercise of religion here. So um, this one will uh, go on and on. We know there's a similar California case. Uh, I assume the administration will wait until someone in the Seventh Circuit uh, or Eighth Circuit grabs hold of one of these so as to create a, a circuit conflict and so it can be pushed up and up and up. But for now, uh, at least uh, we have a halt on that. And uh, during that time, I know at least the blue states are going to be pushing through their own kind of requirement of uh, contraceptive uh, coverage to replace the ACAs. Although, as always, uh, you have to remember ERISA. Yes, I guess it's yet another for the chronicle of uh, malevolence tempered by incompetence. Yes, indeed. Well, from incompetence to grand competence. And uh, Andrea, you've been uh, thinking a lot about AI lately. Um, I have. It's a, a topic that Frank and I are always uh, are pleased to discuss. Where are you and, and what are your current thoughts about AI and healthcare? There are, as with all technologies, positives and negatives. So on the positive side, we're seeing some interesting new applications to um, recombine different existing drugs to treat new uh, new ailments uh, that are uh, previously uh, perhaps uh, unrecognized as good applications for existing Existing, uh, medical technology. So that's all on the positive side. But um, as you both know, I spent a lot of time worrying about how technology will be abused or how technology will accidentally malfunction to cause harm to humans. And that is certainly a key issue anytime we're talking about AI. And I'll put that in verbal air quotes, because that's the first line item that we need to discuss, which is that the marketing department has captured AI. And so they want to put AI in everything now, regardless of whether um, it means something tangible, comparable and concrete to the purchasers of these products. So it's sort of like now better with more butter, except the butter is sometimes of the finest milk and the finest uh, uh, grass fed cows. And sometimes it's more like 80% vegetable oil from, you know, the KFC down the street. And so the the differentiation of what we mean when we talk about artificial intelligence being used to make products better becomes really important. So specifically what I mean is that there are big differences in the way that these systems are built, trained, and deployed that can really mean the difference between life and death in healthcare contexts. So the, the first point, how these systems are built, when you're building these systems, you make as the, the builder, the designer, critical choices. You choose what training data you're going to use. And there's a saying in computer science, garbage in, garbage out. So depending on which training data for these systems the builders have selected, you end up with a system that works very differently and that is going to have different types of errors resulting in the ultimate outcome. And so if you choose choose to train a system, say, on um, only the errors that are known by um, a certain class of medical devices, um, purely in terms of the structure and build of the devices, you're going to get a differently trained new system than if you include that data plus the universe of how humans have failed to successfully interact with these uh, devices uh, and maybe uh, the categories of all known software vulnerabilities that we see in any context in any technology that's currently deployed on the market. So I've gone from sort of least robust training set to most robust. But there are also baselines in social science about the way that data is selected and how you create your samples. And sometimes those very basic social science insights about choosing samples wisely when you're, you're including them in this kind 
kind of data selection, those lessons are sometimes being lost and not transferred into the knowledge base and world of the technologists who are building these systems. So the punchline on the data selection point is that it's really important for any decision maker thinking about buying this type of product with air quotes AI inside to ask robust questions about how the data were selected that were used to train the system. And that goes to the next point of uh, machine learning, which is what we're really usually talking about when we talk about AI now. The idea of a general artificial intelligence, we don't have that yet. That doesn't exist. What we're actually talking about today are very narrow targeted applications of artificial intelligence, usually machine learning. So Andrea, I really think that's that's such a great uh, reminder to everyone in this age of AI hype. And I, I remember the last time we were on, we talked a little bit about the blockchain hype. And I think that the AI bears a similar level of um, warning. Uh, it's There's some very interesting developments both going on in the technical and the legal front that I think may help solve this problem uh, along the lines of what's called explainable AI. So there's a very interesting New York Times Magazine article I'll put up in the show notes about um, Rich Caruana, who is a Microsoft guy who talked about initial early development of neural nets to predict bad outcomes among patients in an ICU in the 90s. And it was exactly along the lines that you were describing, Andrea, in terms of like where there were problematic data or data that wasn't being explained because the model predicted that people with uh, asthma were going to do the best if they had pneumonia. And it turned out that this was all an artifact of the uh, medical practice at the time to put people who had asthma with pneumonia immediately into the highest, most intensive forms of care. It wasn't about asthma itself predicting robustness to pneumonia. It was all about the intervening variable. And it's just so important to be reminded of the um, ongoing validity of basic statistical methods, no matter what the people behind the magical machine learning might might say. And I, I think that's very important legally because this uh, there's a European debate going on now over a right of explanation over whether if there's you're subject to automated profiling, you deserve an explanation of how the profiling worked. Um, but I think we're going to see, especially in medicine, some push toward uh, more explain explanation or explainable AI. It's often called a XAI, uh, to, to, to really demand some uh, type of uh, further elaboration that could be rooted in exactly the factors you're describing, Andrew, in terms of saying it's it's replicable and it's rooted in this data set that is has been compiled according to methods that have statistical validity. I don't know if those are, those are helpful sort of side notes, yeah, but no, just no, wanted no. to throw I, them in. I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. And I think in addition to these questions of explanation, and the understandability to users and purchasers and patients, there's a corollary duty of substantiation on the part of the experts who are building these systems. So if you think about other contexts where we have a lack of easy understandability to expert skills, expert uh, systems, um, think about, say, health claims in um, the FTC's authority. The FTC has a duty that health claims must be substantiated and there are additional rules around what types of health claims can be made in marketing uh, materials. And I would expect that those kind of duties of substantiation, uh, where if you are making expert claims about what your system can do, that that kind of marketing claim will end up being framed legally in similarly thoughtful ways to the way that we require additional substantiation and clarification around medical advertising today. And so the two really go hand in hand in, in this context in particular. I think that you're correct to point out the the marketing hype here. There's clear evidence of, of some hubris uh, with regard to some of these um, AI machine learning products. Um, uh, you know, we know that IBM's Dr. Watson has been getting um, less than perfect press lately uh, with regard to um, its um, the, the, the cure of cancer and so on. But I think it, it, it might be worth noting that there there is a, a real um, non-marketing uh, 
uh, perspective here, which is we are still at a relatively early stage in the development of these kinds of technologies. Um, we tend to be futurists. We tend to uh, uh, perhaps, well, I will speak for myself. I tend to think that this stuff is coming faster than other people think, and I'm prepared to defend it against you two's Luddite-like feelings. Um <laughs> But um, the battle you know, is joined. <laughs> yeah, but you know we're still at a relatively sort of descriptive stage of data analysis. We're we're only really now sort of moving into the beginnings of sort of more diagnostic predictive stuff. Where we really need to be looking at, from my perspective, is. How do we stop ourselves getting into a dangerous prescriptive type of scenario? But uh, I do think that there is there is that uh, perspective as well in, in the timeline of development here. Sure. And I think your comments raise the uh, maybe one of the major takeaways, which is understand the technology and figure out what the correct deployment context is. What can this technology do well? And what is it too early to use this technology to do? So understanding the realistic limitations of the technologies that we have developed to this point is the baseline of care that will eventually evolve. So it's great to push the buck in terms of research and development and come up with the next generation of technology. But deploying it too early, particularly where patient lives are on the line, that's where we see the lessons from particularly information security contexts start to kick in. So uh, in other contexts, but this one would fit too, I call this a builder bias, that there's this enthusiasm for uh, moving fast and breaking things, shipping code, even if you know that there are a bunch of bugs in it and you just assume you'll figure it out when the first... Uh, error reports come in and the customers get unhappy. And while you might be able to do that with an operating system that people use for writing articles um, and typing things or playing games, the stakes are very different when it's patient care and human lives on the line. You can't just ship it fast, break things, and not worry about the particular implementation contexts and the results, including human harm, that will follow. So um, this is a situation where we have to think about uh, the suitability of technologies. And uh, I, I use that loosely borrowing the term of art from sort of financial regulation, but suitability in this context really relates to the fit of the technology for the particular role, the function of the technology, what it can and can't do, um, and the feasibility of maintaining it on an ongoing in an ongoing way and making sure that it continues to work well on day 200 and not just on day one. Um, so while I, I don't disagree that we are very early in the development of these technologies and they will be able to help in many ways, it's important that we not view them as magic black boxes, uh, which uh, Frank, I think, will be sympathetic to my argument on that. Um, yes. And 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 uh, to recognize what they can do and what they can't do. So uh, Professor Ed Felton at Princeton uh, talks about AI as an alien intelligence. It's not replacing humans. It will never replace humans. It thinks differently. So because it thinks differently, the same way that if you learn a language that's completely different from the one that's your native language, it makes your brain analyze sentence structure and meaning and uh, declensions and uh, gendered pronouns and a whole bunch of different categories in a, a new way that causes you to question some baseline assumptions. So AI can help us by offering alternative ways of analyzing things sometimes, but it will never replace the traditional analysis of a human in the way that we understand the analytical models of humans. Um, so the, the marketing hype point, what we're seeing today is that some people are doing basic regression in their code and they're calling it air quotes AI. And so calling things what they really are and not making them sound more fancy than they really are, fancier later 
labels sell more products, but it's not necessarily the most accurate description of what the, the code and the math are actually doing. Um, and that's my cautionary uh, note on that score in terms of the actual build of the, the products. And then the, the next tier of questions, which we can get into, is the, the dynamics of how they get tested and deployed in actual environments. So those are the other two pieces. Yes, I would love to hear more about the testing and deployments. And just to connect it to another sort of AI application in the news, I noticed that the the robot, uh, W-O-E bot, which is apparently a mental health app that Andrew Ang and some other um, AI researchers were pushing on Facebook, you know, they, they are trying to release it to the wild. There's a very good uh, piece on the Future Tense podcast recently on mental health apps, etc. But there is also evidence uh, that the NHS put up a mental health app library that had very little evidence of actual efficacy. So again, there's this question of like, do, how how do we handle this type of uh, material? And, you know, what, but, I, but I'm sure what you're discussing, Andrea, is probably even a step before that, not just efficacy in terms of in, in the medical context, but also is the code doing what they they say the code is doing, which is something I've, I've noticed in the work of like Joshua Kroll and Ed Felton and their work on alg- algorithmic accountability. So is that is that where the direction you were going? Or, or yes, another? yes, that is, that is absolutely dovetailing with the, the direction that I was that I was going. So the question of how efficacy or even functionality, basic more basically whether the code works um, and how it behaves in a not just potentially positive way, but whether it harms people. Um, that goes to the questions of testing that I was that I was uh, highlighting as a, a future line of conversation for us. So um, there are different ways to have these systems once deployed learn actively. And that's kind of the point of machine learning that you train them on data and then they get additional inputs from the outside world and then you know you stir the pot and the stew is created. But the way that this system works uh, can look very different in different contexts. So um, before we turn to the medical context, I was saying with autonomous cars, it's maybe the the easiest way to to understand these these differences. So if I'm an autonomous car company and I am building cars, I can choose to, uh, in addition to using good data sets to train, meaning I would take not only how mechanical cars have failed in the uh, software and mechanics of the cars, but also how humans interact with these cars and result in accidents. So I take all of that accident data historically and I incorporate that in and then I put them out on the road. But I could make a different choice, which um, would be very concerning from a legal standpoint, um, which would be that I decide to just let the car out on the roads roaming around and I give it some maps, which may or may not be updated as expeditiously as we would like and which may or may not have um, the the variations in the rules of the road across states programmed in. And I just let this car drive around. And if it hits some stuff, then it learns from its accidents. And if it kills a few people on the way, okay, then we tweak the code. But uh, say the unethical developers, since there's no software liability, and we have an end user license agreement that everyone clicks yes on when they start the car, well, then we don't really need to worry about uh, having uh, as many legal consequences for us as a regular car company because it's software that's driving the car. That might be a um, slightly caricatured way of thinking for an unscrupulous autonomous vehicle company. Now, we would all recoil in horror and say, obviously, we don't want our streets full of rogue vehicles using us as guinea pigs and randomly running us over to learn. Um, And so those are the two pulls that on the one hand, you can train a system preemptively as much as possible, use all available mechanical and human training data, having reviewed that data for outlier events and to make it as high quality a sample uh, as you can create prior to feeding it into the system and then have a working knowledge of the actual implementation space as you're going to figure out how you will continue to train your system. So you not only need to train your system with the consequences of the bad events that happen, and whether it's healthcare or it's that autonomous car, the same issues apply. You not only need to train with bad events to make sure that the bad events don't recur, but you need to think about the maintenance on an ongoing basis because it's not a closed system. This is a system exposed to the realities of the implementation environment. Isn't the 
the real model of AI machine learning built around the idea that humans cannot really make the kinds of choices that you just mentioned with regard to self-driving cars, you know, as to just throw them out in the in, without it, making conscious choices about the level of safety and so on, that AI, as we will come to know it, essentially teaches itself. It learns. It learns from this massive hose pipe of data. And that humans are no longer going to be really building this software. That maybe humans are going to only be able to look at the results of how these machines are put together. Um, and, and, and that really it's not going to be reg regulation of the way that the software is built. It's going to be output regulation. And that's why I've sort of argued for, um, uh, trying to, uh, increase the sort of the scope of scrutiny, um, to look at, uh, not just basic safety, but to look at sort of cost effectiveness. Do we actually want these darn things to be doing this? And also to look look at their impact on human systems and human traits and whether they therefore sufficiently sort of um, mirror the kind of empathy that we believe um, we still want and believe, particularly in the healthcare system. Yes, I, I agree with all of that. But uh, I think that the output framing that we're discussing at this point in uh, the conversations around artificial intelligence, that's giving me kind of deja vu to the security conversation. So in security, we started with an output-based framing with uh, worrying about the consequences of data breaches. But what we know now is that worrying about data breaches is uh, basically about thinking through how to, how to make a disastrous situation end faster or be less disastrous. Uh, it's about how uh, quickly we can get the roadkill off the road rather than thinking through how to avoid having the roadkill in the first place. And so with the artificial intelligence conversation, it's yes, it's about the output, but it's also about thinking through the mistakes that happen in the processes that got us to that output. And to uh, create or, or sanction legally a system that uh, validates a free-for-all in the processes that lead us to these problematic outcomes, um, that will cause years of growing pains, to put it put it mildly. So uh, I think that we may have a uh, an opportunity here to be a little more cautious and not repeat the mistakes of information security, uh, which, mind you, we haven't solved at all. In fact, our attacks are getting worse and worse, and those concerns of information security are all wrapped into these concerns about information integrity and in artificial intelligence. So the, the current regulatory system we have is not like security, right? It's FDA, full FDA device scrutiny is pre-sale. Is that a system that is going to continue to work with regard to these kinds of products and and devices in the medical sphere? So that's a great question. Uh, I think um, what it will do is that it will cause some tension in the um, category, particularly in the categories of grandfathered devices that have streamlined approval. Um, I think that it's likely manufacturers of um, those uh, grandfathered devices will say, well, we just added a little bit of uh, artificial intelligence software to make the product better, but we haven't changed the design substantially, so we don't need to go through a whole uh, recertification process. Um, and what uh, this brings us into is what I call the Internet of Bodies, particularly as these devices are getting uh, attached to not only to the outside of our bodies, but put inside our bodies. And so the very functionality of our corpus, our, our uh, the mechanics of our flesh and bones will become reliant on software and subject to the same fallibility of software. We create this 
uh, double whammy of the idiosyncrasies of human bodies interacting with the idiosyncrasies of computer code. And that will inevitably result in new types of technology harms that we haven't before seen in this way uh, hitting the courts. And that will cause an upheaval in the discussions of uh, medical related liability and the role that software plays in those findings of liability. To this point, even though there haven't been, to our knowledge, that many cases where software has resulted in death, there's the infamous Therac 25 instances where people were uh, irradiated. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's sort of a well-known case in the security community, but maybe less so in the, the healthcare community. And that was a software miscalibration error. So software has already killed people. Uh, and it will, unfortunately, uh, not to be a downer, especially right before uh, the festive season of the year, but it's inevitable that we will end up with escalating deaths due to software errors. And that will place a tension between the existing structures of pre-approval, the existing as-is whereas liability protections of end user license agreements and responsibility shifting that happens contractually among parties um, and the concerns of patient care that uh, are uh, certainly the, the dominant goal of uh, all of the players, at least I hope so, in the, the system. Um, and your work on uh, the revision of the Iron Triangle, uh, I think, is spot on. Um, so uh, maybe you would elaborate on that argument a bit, because I think your listeners would find it really interesting. I, I think that we're going to have some challenges arise uh, for the way that we have thought about the relationship of human bodies and technology and healthcare to this point. It actually uh, reminds me, some of the things you were talking about reminds me of uh my previous life when I used to teach uh, products liability and um, the uh, the products liability cases involving liability for errors in maps, which I think uh, doctrinally has been the basis for a lot of the uh, the software cases. Uh, also, very much to your point, uh, there was uh, quite a lot of press uh, recently about apparent lobbying by IBM to try and persuade Congress to keep Watson away from device regulation. And that sort of deregulation that we saw begin perhaps with some of the app guidances over the last few years, but uh, much more concretely, although poorly worded, in the 21st Century Cures Act. How do you reflect on that? It, I take it that you think that 21st Century um, Scott Gottlieb's innovation plans and so on uh, may not be taking us in the right direction? I think they highlight some of the challenging issues that we're going to face. So, for example, the FDA issued new draft guidance, I think, just this month on uh, the interpretations of what constitutes a medical device, particularly in light of the 21st Century Cures Act. Um, and they're trying to reaffirm the last generation line of uh, the difference between sort of lifestyle and healthy living devices, such as Fitbits, etc., and uh, the traditional medical device uh, context, which often has been taken to mean piercing the skin. So if it's on the inside, it's a medical device. Generally, if it's on the outside, it has been sometimes deemed to be non-medical. But the, the challenge that I'm highlighting is that this is an example of a traditional distinction that starts to really fall away in the next generation of human bodies that are impacted by software. So imagine a swallowable digital pill, which has already been approved as a concept, and the first ones are going through FDA approval now, not for, say, the administration of a tested drug, but for your vitamin supplements or um, your your health tracker turns into swallowable pill form and it talks from the inside of your stomach to your phone on the outside of your body. But any kind of technology that relies on code to function can also be controlled the other way and say Bluetooth, which we know to be a notori notoriously vulnerable technology, can be a point of attack not only for your phone, but also potentially for that digital pill inside your stomach. And if it's a vitamin 
vitamins such as vitamin C, okay, that even if all of the vitamin C gets dumped into your system, uh, maybe you'll end up with a stomach ache. You know, footnote, I am the wrong kind of doctor. So this is not medical (laughs) advice in any way. Um, But if it's say uh, an embedded uh, insulin delivery device, and we've had internet connected systems for insulin delivery already created, uh, the first cyber pancreas, if you will. Um, When it's that kind of a device, having a code error or an external manipulation by an attacker or uh, a well-meaning but clumsy or uninformed technician, having an insulin malfunction with the device that's on the inside of your body, that has a new level of consequences potentially for patients and patient care. Um, But that line of what constitutes a medical device, does my swallow fitness tracker because it's on the inside of my body does that still remain a just a lifestyle device or is that something different and if it's a, a supplement that's not regulated in the same way um, it does that make a difference we there are gray areas that are emerging that the existing guidance newly issued under 21st century cures doesn't necessarily clarify so the FDA will be um, hopefully engaging with these issues more deeply in coming years so if I if I may uh, uh add another festive note, Andrea. Um, What better during the holidays than to gather the the whole family around the TV and watch 1966's Fantastic Voyage um, to to remind you of what happens when you send a miniaturized submarine into someone's body. I think that that may be something that will uh, put flesh on Andrea's nasty little swallowable pill. We're always good for laughs around the dining room table, aren't we? (laughs) For uh, for one more colorful example, um, uh, let me tell you a little bit about the patent activity that I've been seeing. Uh, and to illustrate the blurriness, pun intended, you'll see why in a second, of the line between medical devices and lifestyle devices. So there are currently several patents that have been filed for injected contact lenses into human eyes. Some of these injected contact lenses do things things like monitor glucose levels. Some have a direct internet connection to allow you to auto archive everything you're seeing in front of you. Some of them have augmented reality capabilities so that as you're walking through life, you can have your Pokemon Go characters or whatever they choose to build in as an app uh, make your lived experienced reality so much more exciting because uh, apparently crossing the street isn't exciting enough for uh, some of the anticipated users of this product. But the reality when you take a step back, so first is the question of whether this is a medical device or it is just a lifestyle device. Is having my choice to auto-archive everything that I see in my life, putting the privacy concerns aside, uh, the things that that made Google Glass unpalatable to a lot of people, such as uh, thinking through what happens when people wear Google Glass in public bathrooms, right? But Google Glass found a home in factory floors. But when these contact lenses are injected into eyeballs, A, we don't know when people are even wearing them necessarily, but B, they raise the the line of what is medical versus non-medical, but C, they raise a third set of issues that go back to the maintenance and security points that I was raising earlier. So anything that is internet connected can absolutely be compromised. Anything with any computer code inside it can have coding flaws and errors that lead to manipulation of the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of that code and that product consequently. If you look at the lessons from the internet of things about how dangerous uh, the world is, think about the WannaCry attack that impacted NHS and other hospitals. Now imagine that instead of the machines that were dealing with administrative things in WannaCry, imagine it is instead a network of people's injected contact lenses that have internet connections that are the targets of the attack in um, a version of WannaCry that goes after these lenses. So um, will we have a world where people are getting ransomware pushed onto their internet connected contact lenses that are in their eyeballs? Will we have patent litigation where software patent holders will allege that some of these injected lenses are infringing on the the patents that they hold and therefore the uh, service provided to these lenses must be discontinued? Um, Who will bear the costs of these kinds of consequences um, in a world where these things are not easily removable? Does the patient then need to go get these lenses removed? Well, that comes with risk anytime you have 
a procedure done, obviously, uh, no need for me to mention that to this audience. Um, and so we have these next generation physical risks where software and code and flesh and bones inter intertwine. So uh, bits and bytes and flesh and blood uh, combining will create this, this next generation of problems for us. And uh, net neutrality comes in here, perhaps counterintuitively as well. But imagine the world where you are choosing an internet reliant device to control the functioning of, say, your um, previously paralyzed arm. And they're doing amazing things with connecting uh, these kinds of external devices, whether it's exoskeletons or nodes into the uh, technologies around brainstem uh, communications and external machines. And so you basically have a revolution of in potentially incredibly useful innovation in helping paralyzed uh, patients use limbs they had lost functionality previously in. Um, but if you choose a build that relies on internet access for that continued functionality in a world where there can be paid prioritization. Let's say that either the patient or the uh, maintaining company for that device or the hospital network that is also involved in this chooses the wrong package of paid prioritization or the terms of service change. And um, this is a disfavored lane for those packets. We could end up in a world where people who bought these technologies and decided to make their own bodies contingent on these technologies face diminished functionality because of the internet access problems that we have. As anyone who's driven cross-country knows, we do not have a perfect wireless uh, network of seamless internet connection everywhere. Um, we are unfortunately a, a country that is severely behind our uh, peers in the rest of the world in terms of the quality of the internet connection compare our internet uh, blackout zones and the, the quality in cities to that in South Korea, for example. Um, you start to realize that we're behind the curve here. And so we're building this whole society and human bodies contingent on the presence of high quality internet access when it's simply not necessarily the case, particularly in a world where paid prioritization and, and a deficit of network neutrality could impact patient outcomes. Let's push the security conversation a little bit further. Earlier this year, we got a report from the Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Task Force on improving cybersecurity in the healthcare space. I did take a look at it, and it seemed to say the right sorts of things but I'm not sure it really had action items that satisfied me. It's a process. So the fact that that report exists is a very positive sign. And it is a demonstration of the high level of goodwill that the current FDA has with respect to engaging with the security research community and academics and uh, their degree of interest in addressing security challenges. So Dr. Suzanne Schwartz at the FDA, who runs their security uh, program um, is uh, someone who comes to security conferences. She, she and I have been on panels together and uh, you have a uh, significant positive direction for thinking through these issues at the FDA that um, I, I think is very uh, constructive and I'm really happy to see it. So that report, um, it's certainly not the end point of the security conversation for medical devices and context, it is the starting point. Um, and I would uh, view it as a teaser of coming attractions as uh, the FDA continues to work with private sector entities and researchers to try to articulate the best possible path forward for medical device security. You know, one thing I'm wondering about, Andrea, is it seems as though this has got to be a problem that needs some level of international governance or international standard setting, because the components are going to be coming from all over the world, right? I mean, I remember from uh, the, the book Ghost Ship, um, that was sort of a really interesting vision of how security, lax security standards could lead to a cyber attack on the US that could just devastate us militarily. Um, and one of the key plot lines of that was that there's all these parts that come from around the world, particularly China, that could be loaded with, you know, various uh, trapdoors or other things that could allow people to get in, mess with systems, etc. And I'm wondering, do you think that that is necessary, that that's going to be something that we need international cooperation on 
on? And if so, is there any sort of uh, hope on the horizon that that's going to be happening anytime soon? Uh, so I think it is absolutely an issue that requires international cooperation. And there are two levels of uh, the issue that you've highlighted. So the first level is that there are many pre-existing coordination problems in terms of international standards that um, are going to be progressively more software impacted. What do I mean? For example, if you have a pacemaker that was implanted in country A and you are traveling or move to country B, depending on which pacemaker you had implanted, it's not necessarily a given that the emergency room in country B is going to be able to interact successfully with your pacemaker because of the software on it and the coding on it. And so there are different local norms and different default standards in the construction of medical devices too uh, uh, today that impact uh, baselines of international uh, of functionality of these devices across international lines. So there are some preliminary uh, prerequisites that we can work on today to make the technology compatibility issues less bad in the future. Um, but uh, the point about having a, a third party, particularly a third party nation state, say, hypothetically, um, have backdoor access through our medical systems or medical devices, um, that's A, very scary, uh, but B, is it possible? Well, yes, it, it is possible in a world where there are shared components across many medical devices and these shared components are coming from a single provider in many cases in a country that may be hostile to the U.S., it is a realistic concern to think through these supply chain integrity questions and to be aware that they present an important point of vulnerability that needs to be planned around when you are choosing systems for hospitals. Um, so this is not uh, uh, not necessarily on the scale of something like the wanna cry-ish episode that I described previously, but I had a, a very interesting conversation with a good friend of mine who uh, is a child pathologist and her uh, hospital, uh, one of the leading child pathology uh, hospitals in the world, is choosing a transcription provider. And uh, one of the things that they had not thought about was the, the question of uh, how the end user license agreement permits the parent company of that transcription provider to access or aggregate information coming from their inputs in the hospital and to share it with their other subsidiaries, which uh, develop other kinds of software and uh, technologies that are used for, among other things, uh, military purposes, potentially to hurt people. So the mission on the one hand of this particular company and other subsidiaries sits in contrast to the mission of my friend's hospital, which uh, of course is to help heal people rather than uh, hurt them. Um, and so taking a step back and looking at not only the supply chain inputs, but also the supply chain going forward, whether you are creating an input for other systems and where that sharing may also put patient care or patient lives outside of the hospital uh, setting at risk. Uh, these are some of the kinds of questions that uh, are underexplored in the busy day-to-day of uh, healthcare in selecting technology uh, technology providers or particular technologies that you're bringing into a, a clinical setting. But every technology that you introduce, everything from the internet-connected coffee machine to the transcription service to the uh, software that coexists on the nursing stations in a hospital with Bob's ventilator that his life relies on, all of those pieces of code present potential attack vectors and present a new a new threat. Uh, so uh, looking at the big picture and working your way down through the supply chain and into the minutia of implementation contexts. 
uh, is a daunting task, but it's absolutely necessary. Uh, there was recently a bill put forth by Senator Warner um, that proposed for IoT devices purchased by the government in particular, a type of uh, bill of particulars or a list of reviewing all of the devices and code bases that exist in these devices. And so the thinking was that there is an affirmative obligation to keep track of the devices, but also the code libraries and the code bases and the components that are embedded in these devices used by the government in order to monitor for precisely the kinds of risks that you're identifying, Frank. And the recent legal constraints around the use of Kaspersky software in U.S. government settings highlights these types of concerns where a seemingly innocuous software application may be a point of entry or a point of facilitating a third party entry into U.S. systems for nefarious purposes. So many cautionary tales there. Time, of course, is always our enemy. And uh, I know Frank is uh, rushing to uh, finish wrapping my gift and getting it to FedEx in time for uh, the, the big day. But I did want, uh, while I had you both here, to at least bring up the topic of net neutrality, or I suppose now after uh, FCC Chairman uh, Pai's uh, activities, uh, the lack of net neutrality. Uh, I bet that probably the only uh, the only fun part of this, to my mind, incredibly uh, retrograde uh, move. Uh, was Pi's own uh, bizarre video where he attempted to explain the world <laughs> after neutrality uh, went away and which apparently attracted a takedown notice uh, under Andrea's favorite statute, the DMCA, uh, over uh, the use of some music in that or something. But my, my serious question is, um, some argue that with the absence of net neutrality, you tend to cement the dominance of incumbents, those who can pay for the fast lanes. My question to both of you is, as healthcare increasingly becomes a digital good, what are the implications, if any, for healthcare from abandoning net neutrality? So my understanding from some of the conversations I have heard and some articles by folks at Public Knowledge and some other advocacy groups is that under the pre-Pi regime, the sort of Wheeler 2015 to 2017 regime, you could have certain forms of um, paid prioritization for medical um, uh, applications. So I, I don't know if, the, you know, I think that there is some bad faith in terms of some of the arguments for the rollback of net neutrality that are public based on that rationale. I will say though, I mean, here's my one counterintuitive spin on this stuff is that I am sympathetic to some of the folks that are a little uh, distant or detached or cynical about the debate over net neutrality when they say, well, you know, maybe it's just some large giant corporations, two, two groups of large corporations fighting each other. Just in the sense that, you know, if we are heading toward a world where um, the prioritization of apps or other health Help health um, related businesses by Amazon or Google or who knows Facebook um, or Microsoft or uh, other entities where that would be happening and where the sort of centrifugal pull of data, money, and power toward those companies uh, starts affecting the healthcare space. It's hard to object to the possibility of say the big ISPs also getting in on that game and maybe having you know or, or somehow accelerating health entrepreneurship in ways that they. Ordinarily wouldn't if they were not able to take some cut of the underlying business activity. But on the other hand, though, I really don't like their vertical integration. I hope we can do a show soon on the CBS uh, Aetna mer um, pr proposed merger um, and the lessons of ATT Time Warner, because I think overall, these are all problems in the same wheelhouse, which is that of corporate concentration and power. And the extent to which you allow that sort of concentration and power to accumulate, um, the worse it is, I think, for competition in the economy. And certainly, I think the rollback of net neutrality helps uh, contribute to that. My take is uh, somewhat parallel to, to Frank's. So uh, I mentioned net neutrality previously uh, in a shorthand version of uh, the practical implications on patients in terms of what it means to have the ability of various different players create new tolls, basically, on the, the highway of, of internet access to use the much, much abused 
metaphor. Um, but the the practical competition implication from my perspective of net neutrality uh, being damaged or uh, unenforced, um, depending on how you want to frame it, is that uh, the barriers to entry become significantly higher as a practical matter for startups. So in a world where paid prioritization uh, in a new level uh, compared to what we have now uh, exists, uh, you have to think about not only getting high quality internet access from your provider into your enterprise, you have to think about the level of quality of internet access for your customers and what they're experiencing in on the receiving end. And if you're working with any intermediaries such as cloud services, you have to think about what they are uh, experiencing in terms of internet access. And if one of the major cloud providers, for example, gets into a spat with one of the major ISPs, there could be a threat to cut off all of the subscribers of that ISP from those services. Um, and we've had a history of past FCCs raising concerns that there was throttling happening, that there was a use potentially of um, the quality of service or other means uh, as a leveraging point in negotiations. There was press coverage on uh, raising that specter, uh, that possibility in, in past discussions, certainly. So when it is just providers jockeying over the quality of our Netflix shows, uh, although we suffer, we don't uh, necessarily pass away if we have to let our uh, Stranger Things episode buffer a bit longer. But when it is your robotic arm or your internet connected pancreas or your internet connected eyeball or your pacemaker getting a critical security update when it's that sort of a set of bits being buffered the stakes are higher and the stakes are different and so from my perspective the concern is the transfer of functional control over the quality of service from the state that that it has traditionally existed in the last few years at least to a more distributed set of points for limiting the ability of high quality service or uh, creating points for potential rent extraction in the econ economics term sense or manipulation of one set of winners and over another set of losers. Um, so the invisible inequalities that a lack of net neutrality can create pose a real threat to the innovation by small entities in particular in healthcare. Yes, that was the week in health law. But before we go, uh, this is also our last pod of the year. In fact, if it goes any longer, it might be our last two pods of the year. Um, <laughs> so just a, uh, a a moment for each of you, uns unscripted and unknown, that you're going to be asked these questions. Um, I'd be interested to know what are your enduring thoughts about our year 2017 in health law and policy. I suppose to give you time to think, I'll go first. For me, the most telling modification of the healthcare policy that we've known was the rebranding or retrograde branding of Medicaid as welfare for the deserving poor, as opposed to the health insurance model of Medicaid that I think the country had grown into, uh, led by uh, places like Massachusetts and that were captured uh, by the Affordable Care Act. So for me, I think 2017 heralds the arrival of what I call the Internet of Bodies, where we see very clear cut cases of physical bodies starting to become reliant on the Internet and code for their functionality. And this is important because as the Internet of Things becomes the Internet of Bodies, it also heralds the definitive magic legal moment when software liability will come to fruition because courts will be ready to create the basis for liability when software fails and it leads to human deaths. And that is eliminating some of the legal wrangling and issues that we've seen in prior generations of case law around privacy and security, where the uh, concrete articulation of the economic loss and the harm and the causality have created challenges for plaintiff's attorneys, but not so in the same way when there is a link, a line 
drawable between the malfunction of a device or the miscoding of a device and uh, human bodies experiencing physical harm or even death. So on that happy note, the Internet of Bodies is my event of 2017. Yeah, and I think that just trying to uh, keep up a brave face or a stiff upper lip or a, so choose your uh, metaphor of potentially ill-founded optimism, uh, I think that 20, 2017 uh, marks a year where a lot of folks in the Democratic Party suddenly realized uh, exactly what the nature of uh, the health policy landscape is. And the I'd say that the center of gravity in the party during the Obama years was very heavily tilted toward a technocratic approach, something, you know, between Jonathan Gruber and uh, Peter Orzag uh, with respect to how you would uh, solve uh, healthcare crises, how you try to achieve the triple aim um, and to cover as many people as possible. And I think that where we have gone, especially with the introduction of the uh, single-payer bill in the Senate and many uh, top-level senators signing on, is that the center of gravity is shifting in the Democratic Party towards something that's uh, much closer to a European model or a single-payer model or a Medicare for All, uh, or at the very least, public option model. And I think that really is uh, important for the health policy landscape, because I think the the problem of the Obama years, as many have sort of pointed out in uh, post-AC passage analyses was that uh, it sort of started by folks negotiating against themselves. And so that's where I think we're going. I think that this new tax bill that I guess is just being passed uh, today, that that's going to be something that is uh, uh, going to also drive policy in that direction as well. In fact, uh, Frank, uh, I believe while we were on the air today, uh, that uh, did survive, that did pass and has been hailed by our president, not only as uh, a tax bill, but also uh, the repeal of um, Obamacare. Yes, and I'm, I'm surprised that uh, President Trump didn't sort of dress up as Santa Claus uh, to sort of give out this gift. But I, uh, the other thing that I think is so fascinating about this is apparently uh, the president may not uh, sign this until January 1st, 2018, in order to ensure that the pay-go rules will not lead to mandatory Medicare cuts until 2019 after the midterm election. So that that appears to be the uh, the game now. Uh, and maybe, maybe uh, 400 uh, distracting tweets in October will also uh, lead people not to remember what exactly went on today. So <laughs> who knows? I wonder if that particular center in his sack just has coal because <laughs> coal, coal, the new coal is just so good. So on on that note, a big thank you to uh, Professor Matt Wishard for being with us. Uh, she is on Twitter, as most of you already know, at A-M-A-T-W-Y-S-H-Y-N. But don't tweet her during the Christmas Day broadcast of Doctor Who because she'll be busy. Thank you for joining us, Andrea. My pleasure, anytime. So we post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank, where are you for the last week of the year or so? At Frank Pasquale on Twitter, but also at HealthPI. To uh, you, Frank, and also to you, dear listener, happy holidays, and uh, we'll uh, see you in the new year. Thank you for joining us and have a a legally interesting and healthy uh, final week of what, let's face it, has been a less than brilliant year. Well, I guess the understatement of the year award goes to you, Nick. Perhaps it could also be paraphrased as, hey, at least we're not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> That's it. 